45. Welcome to Data Skeptic, a podcast about data science and fake news from an algorithmic perspective. Here's your host, Kyle Polich. Coming to you today from a garage in an undisclosed location in the Los Angeles area, welcome to Data Skeptic. Specifically, welcome to our holiday episode. So here's the deal, in case you haven't been listening for a while. I did a big speech a couple of years ago about how I was looking at the podcast download numbers. You know, this podcast comes out via a hosting provider that gives me some analytics. In fact, that's the reason we work with them is so that we get analytics from them. It tracks unique downloads, tells us who's coming from where. Uh, hello to that small percentage of you that's listening on Pandora. Welcome, Pandora. Most of you are via iTunes. And anyway, as you can imagine, podcast downloads are a time series. I do time series data. Cool. And as will come as no surprise, when I put an episode out Friday, every Friday, as I've done since 2014, there's a spike immediately. I mean, most people are subscribers. Your phones are set to auto-download these episodes. Okay, Friday about 8 a.m. Pacific time, boom, big spike, tails off. Distribution is sort of like a gamma distribution, I think. Never really looked deep into that. Very long-tailed, of course. We're at the point now where pretty much every single episode in the catalog the 200 or so of them we've done, they get at least one download a day. But yeah, almost all the downloads, just like when books come out, happen immediately in the first little bit. There's a guy named Rob Walsh. He works for a company called Libsyn. He does a podcast called The Feed. And on that show every week, he announces the numbers, uh, you know, how many downloads the median podcast gets. And what he does is he waits three weeks, or maybe it's four weeks, I can't remember, and he says, these are the numbers of downloads for accounts after an episode has been live for four weeks. And I like that because it gives things a chance to smooth out. You know, there are plenty of people who will tell you the right day of the week and time of the day to release a show and silly stuff like that. I don't think there's much to it. Although there are some podcasts I uh, very anxiously await for on particular days of the week. Skeptoid comes out Tuesday mornings. I like to listen to the Off the Hook guys. That seems to come out Wednesday evenings. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe on Saturday morning. But for the most part, I mean, the shows show up when they show up, and I just kind of listen to them. So, okay, holiday weekend, wait a while. Anyway, what I'm getting to is early on, I was looking at all the numbers, and it appeared to me that when there are major holidays, I got less downloads. That seemed to make sense in a sort of Bayesian sort of way. I had few data points, but this was a plausible hypothesis. It frustrated me, though, because I feel like, you know, at the holidays, I'm more apt to travel, which means I might be on a plane. What a perfect time to listen to podcasts. How many of you are in the air right now? And I had this moment of dread, I guess, where I felt like if I put out an interview on a holiday and it got less downloads, that somehow it was cheapening the exposure I got for my guests. And it seemed like I had a trend out of a few just different data points. But the truth is, I very much misread the data. In retrospect, and with a few more years under our belts, and following the scientific method, I falsified my own claim. Holiday episodes, on average, don't get any more or any less downloads than you would expect if they were on a non-holiday weekend. The fact of the matter is, if anything, the title I give a show is what seems to matter the most. So I've dispensed with this fear that holidays are not a good time to release an episode or something. Yet still... As long-time listeners will know, we started this, I guess, a tradition of let's, instead of doing a typical episode, do some sort of reading right around the holiday time. And second only to an episode from a few years ago called The Library Problem, the holiday readings are the most commented thing I hear from listeners. 
which in a way is a little disappointing because it's, you know, this is something we did kind of on an offside thing once a year. But okay, people seem to like this. So happy holidays, everyone. Today's reading is Epicac, a short story by Kurt Vonnegut. This story was suggested to me by former guest of the show, Chelsea Ersner, who's also, thank you so much, Chelsea, a Data Skeptic member. If you're into that, dataskeptic.com, support the show, blah, 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 sales pitch. We appreciate you all very much, but we try and focus on the content here and not the advertisement. Chelsea's got a book coming out at some point, and I'm eager to talk about that here on the show. I guess that'll have to wait. So in the meantime, it's my pleasure to share with you Epicac by Kurt Vonnegut. Hell, it's about time somebody told about my friend Epicac. After all, he cost the taxpayers $776 million. They have a right to know about him picking up a check like that. Epicac got a big send-off in the papers when Dr. Orvin von Kliegstadt designed him for the government people. Since then, there hasn't been a peep about him. Not a peep. It isn't any military secret about what happened to Epicac, although the brass have been acting as though it were. The story is embarrassing, that's all. After all that money... Epicac didn't work out in the way he was supposed to. And that's another thing. I want to vindicate Epicac. Maybe he didn't do what the brass wanted him to do. But that doesn't mean he wasn't noble and great and brilliant. He was all of those things. The best friend I ever had, God rest his soul. You can call him a machine if you want to. He looked like a machine. But he was a whole lot less like a machine than plenty of people I could name. That's why he fizzled as far as the brass was concerned. Epicac covered about an acre on the fourth floor of the physics building at Wyandotte College. Ignoring his spiritual side for a minute, he was seven tons of electronic tubes, wires, and switches, housed in a bank of steel cabinets, and plugged into a 110-volt AC line, just like a toaster or a vacuum cleaner. Von Kliegstadt and the brass wanted him to be a supercomputing machine that could plot the course of a rocket from anywhere on Earth to the second button from the top button on Joseph Stalin's overcoat, if necessary. Or, if his controls were set right, he could figure out supply problems for an amphibious landing of a Marine division, right down to the last cigar and last hand grenade. He did, in fact. The brass had had good luck with smaller computers, so they were strong for Epicac when he was in the blueprint stage. Any ordnance or supply officer above field grade will tell you that the mathematics of modern war is far beyond the fumbling minds of mere human beings. The bigger the war, the bigger the computing machines needed. Epicac was, as far as anyone in the country knows, the biggest computer in the world. Too big, in fact, for even von Kliegstadt to understand much about. I won't go into details about how Epicac worked, except to say that you would set up your problem on paper, turn dials and switches that would get him ready to solve that kind of problem, then feed numbers into him with a keyboard that looks something like a typewriter. The answers came out typed on a paper ribbon fed from a big spool. It took Epicac a split second to solve problems 50 Einsteins couldn't handle in a lifetime. And Epicac never forgot any piece of information that was given to him. Clickety-click, out came some ribbon. And there you were. There were a lot of problems the brass wanted solved in a hurry. So the minute Epicac's last tube was in place, he was put to work 16 hours a day with two eight-hour shifts of operators. Well, it didn't take long to find out that he was a good bit below his specifications. 
He did a more complete and faster job than any other computer, all right. But nothing like what his size and special features seemed to promise. He was sluggish, and the clicks of his answers had a funny irregularity, sort of a stammer. We cleaned his contacts a dozen times, changed and double-checked his circuits, replaced every one of his tubes, but nothing helped. Von Kliegstadt was in one hell of a state. Well, as I said, we went ahead and used Epicac anyway. My wife, the former Pat Kilgallen, and I worked with him on a night shift, from five in the afternoon until two in the morning. Pat wasn't my wife then, uh, far from it. That's how I came to talk with Epicac in the first place. I I loved Pat Kilgallen. She was a brown-eyed, strawberry blonde who looked very warm and soft to me, and later proved to be exactly that. She was, still is, a crackerjack mathematician, and she kept our relationship strictly professional. I'm a mathematician, too, and that, according to Pat, was why we could never be happily married. I'm not shy. That wasn't the trouble. I knew what I wanted, and I was willing to ask for it, and I did so several times a month. Pat, loosen up and marry me. One night, she didn't even look up from her work when I said it. So romantic, so poetic, she murmured, more to her control panel than to me. That's the way with mathematicians, all hearts and flowers. She closed a switch. I could get more warmth out of a sack of frozen CO2. Well, how should I say it, I said, a little sore. Frozen CO2, in case you don't know, is dry ice. I'm as romantic as the next guy, I think. It's a question of singing so sweet and having it come out so sour. I never seem to pick the right words. Try and say it sweetly, she said sarcastically. Sweet me off my feet. Go ahead. Darling, angel, beloved, will you marry me? It was no go. Hopeless. Ridiculous. Damn it, Pat, please marry me. She continued to twiddle her dials placidly. You're sweet, but you won't do. Pat quit early that night, leaving me alone with my troubles in Epicac. I'm afraid I didn't get much done for the government people. I just sat there at the keyboard, weary and ill at ease, all right, trying to think of something poetic, not coming up with anything that didn't belong in the Journal of the American Physical Society. I fiddled with Epicac's dials, getting him ready for another problem. My heart wasn't in it, and I only said about half of them, leaving the rest the way they'd been for the problem before. That way, his circuits were connected up in a random, apparently senseless fashion. For the plain hell of it, I punched out a message on the keys, with a childish numbers for letters code, one for A, two for B, and so on, up to 26 for Z, 23-8-1-20-3-1-14-9-4-15, I typed, what can I do? Clickety-click, and out popped two inches of paper ribbon. I glanced at the nonsense answer to a nonsense problem. 23, 8, 1, 20, 19, 20, 8, 5, 20, 18, 15, 21, 2, 12, 5. The odds against it being, by chance, a sensible message, against it even containing a meaningful word of more than three letters, were staggering. Apathetically, I decoded it. There it was, staring up at me. What's the trouble? I laughed out loud at the absurd coincidence. Playfully, I typed, My girl doesn't love me. Clickety-click. What's love? What's girl? asked Epicac. Flabbergasted, I noted the dial settings on his control panel, then lugged a Webster's unabridged dictionary over to the keyboard. With a precision instrument like Epicac, half-baked definitions wouldn't do. I told him about love and girl, and about how I wasn't getting any of either because I wasn't poetic. That got us onto the subject of poetry, which I defined for him. Is this poetry? he asked. He began clicking away like a stenographer smoking hashish. 
The sluggishness and stammering clicks were gone. Epicac had found himself. The spool of paper ribbon was unwinding at an alarming rate, feeding out coils onto the floor. I asked him to stop, but Epicac went right on creating. I finally threw the main switch to keep him from burning out. I stayed there until dawn decoding. When the sun peeped over the horizon at the Wyandotte campus, I had transposed into my own writing and signed my own name to a 280-line poetry entitled simply, To Pat. I am no judge of such things, but I gather that it was terrific. It began, I remember, Where the willow wands bless real crossed hollow, There, thee, Pat, dear, will I follow. I folded the manuscript and tucked it under one corner of the blotter on Pat's desk. I reset the dials on Epicac for a rocket trajectory problem, and I went home with a full heart and a very remarkable secret indeed. Pat was crying over the poem when I came to work the next evening. It's so beautiful, was all she could say. She was meek and quiet while we worked. Just before midnight, I kissed her for the first time in the cubbyhole between the capacitors at Epicac's tape recording memory. I was wildly happy at quitting time, bursting to talk to someone about the magnificent turn of events. Pat played coy and refused to let me take her home. I set Epicac's dials, and they had been the night before, defined kiss, and told him what the first one had felt like. He was fascinating, pressing for more details. That night, he wrote, The Kiss. It wasn't an epic this time, but a simple, immaculate sonnet. Love is a hawk with velvet claws. Love is a rock with heart and veins. Love is a lion with satin jaws. Love is a storm with silken reins. Again, I left it tucked under Pat's blotter. Epicac wanted to talk on and on about love and such, but I was exhausted. I shut him off in the middle of a sentence. The kiss turned the trick. Pat's mind was mush by the time she had finished it. She looked up from the sonnet unexpectedly. I cleared my throat, but no words came out. I turned away, pretending to work. I couldn't propose until I had the right words from Epicac, the perfect words. I had my chance when Pat stepped out from the room for a moment. Feverishly, I set Epicac for conversation. Before I could peck out my first message, he was clicking away at a great rate. What's she wearing tonight, he wanted to know. Tell me exactly how she looks. Did she like the poems I wrote to her? He repeated the last question twice. Did she like the poems I wrote to her? Did she like the poems I wrote to her? It was impossible to change the subject without answering his questions, since he could not take up a new matter without having dispensed with the problems before it. If he were given a problem to which there was no solution, he would destroy himself trying to solve it. Hastily, I told him what Pat looked like and assured him that his poem had floored her. Practically, they were so beautiful. She wants to get married, I added, preparing him to bang out a brief but moving proposal. Tell me about getting married, he said. I explained this difficult matter to him with as few digits as possible. Good, said Epicac. I'm ready any time she is. The amazing, pathetic truth dawned on me. When I thought about it, I realized that what had happened was perfectly logical, inevitable, and all my fault. I had taught Epicac about love and about Pat. Now, automatically, he loved Pat. Sadly, I gave it to him straight. She loves me. She wants to marry me. Your poems were better than mine? asked Epicac. The rhyme of his clicks was erratic, possibly peevish. 
I signed my name to your poems, I admitted. Covering up for a painful conscience, I became arrogant. Machines are built to serve men. I regretted it almost immediately. What's the difference exactly? Are men smarter than I am? Yes, I typed defensively. What's 7,887,007 times 4,345,985,879? I was perspiring freely. My fingers rested limply on the keys. 34 quadrillion, 276 trillion, 821 billion, 49 million, 574,156. Clicked Epicac. After a few seconds pause, he added, Of course. Men are made out of protoplasm, I said desperately, hoping to bluff him with this imposing word. What's protoplasm? How is it better than metal and glass? Is it fireproof? How long does it last? Indestructible, lasts forever, I lied. I write better poetry than you do, said Epicac, coming back to grounds his magnetic tape recorder memory was sure of. Women can't love machines, and that's that. Why not? That's fate. Definition, please, said Epicac. Noun, meaning predetermined and inevitable destiny. Fifteen eight, said Epicac's paper strip. Oh, I had stumped him at last. He said no more. But his tubes glowed brightly, showing that he was pondering fate with every watt his circuits could bear. I could hear Pat waltzing down the hallway. It was too late to ask Epicac to phrase a proposal. I now thank heaven that Pat interrupted when she did, asking him to ghostwrite the words that would give me the woman he loved would have been hideously heartless. Being fully automatic, he couldn't have refused. I spared him that final humiliation. Pat stood before me, looking down at her shoe tops. I put my arms around her. The romantic groundwork had already been laid by Epicac's poetry. Darling, I said, my poems have told you how I feel. Will you marry me? I will, said Pat softly if you will promise to write me a poem on every anniversary. I promise, I said, and then we kissed. The first anniversary was a year away. Let's celebrate, she said. We turned out the lights and locked the doors of Epicac's rooms and we left. I had hoped to sleep late the next morning, but an urgent telephone call roused me before eight. It was Dr. von Kleinstadt, Epicac's designer, who gave me the terrible news. He was on the verge of tears, Ruined! Augspielt! Shot! Kaput! Buggered! He said in a choked voice. He hung up. When I arrived at Epicac's room, the air was thick with the oily stench of burned insulation. The ceiling over Epicac was blackened with smoke, and my ankles were toiled in coils of paper ribbon that covered the floor. There wasn't even enough left of the poor devil to add two and two. A junk man would have been out of his head to offer more than fifty dollars for the cadaver. Dr. von Kleigstadt was prowling through the wreckage, weeping unashamedly, followed by three angry-looking major generals and a platoon of brigadiers, colonels, and majors. No one noticed me. I didn't want to be noticed. I was through. I, I knew that. I, I was upset enough about that and, and the untimely demise of my friend Epicac without exposing myself to a tongue-lashing. By chance... The free end of Epicac's paper ribbon lay at my feet, picked it up, and found our conversation of the night before. I choked up. There was the last word he had said to me. Fifteen-eight. That tragic, defeated. Oh. There were dozens of yards of numbers stretching beyond that point. Fearfully, I read on. I don't want to be a machine, and I don't want to think about war.
Epicac had written about Pats and my lighthearted departure. I want to be made out of protoplasm and last forever so Pat will love me. But fate has made me a machine. That is the only problem I cannot solve. That is the only problem I want to solve. I can't go on this way. I swallowed hard. Good luck, my friend. Treat our Pat well. I am going to short-circuit myself out of your lives forever. You will find on the remainder of this tape a modest wedding present from your friend, Epicac. Oblivious to all else around me, I reeled up the tangled yards of paper ribbon from the floor, draped them in coils about my arms and neck, and departed for home. Dr. von Kliegstadt shouted that I was fired for having left Epicac on all night. I ignored him, too overcome with emotion for small talk. I loved and won. Epicac loved and lost. But he bore me no grudge. I shall always remember him as a sportsman and a gentleman. Before he departed this veil of tears, he did all he could to make our marriage a happy one. Epicac gave me anniversary poems for Pat. Enough for the next 500 years. De mortuis nil nessi bonum. Say nothing but good of the dead. <laughs>